Happy Resurrection Sunday. Um, super excited about uh, this Sunday. R- yeah, Roy Jr. Kids, if you're ready to go with Camden, you can go with Camden. I think he's gonna, he's over there back there, but they're probably going to take you out to the metal building because it's gorgeous out there, so you don't have to be inside um, during this 60-minute sermon. Um, wait, what? <laughs> Oh, man, I'm really excited because uh, um, I feel like, so I don't know, I mean, if you don't know me personally, I'm not a very smart person, um, so I can't, uh, <laughs> I, can't I, don't, I don't have the ability to be this precise, but uh, this is a testimony tonight of the sovereignty of God when it comes to planning, and that when the, the preaching schedule for um, this year was set before January, we were going to be in Hebrews. Uh, nobody was like, ooh, Easter is going to be on April 9th. Let's preach through uh, Hebrews chapter 7, you know? And, and I was thinking, I was, I was planning this week, I was like, how many other churches are preaching through Hebrews, like, on Easter Sunday? You know, and, but what's incredible is that this is an amazing Easter passage, like an in, uh, incredible Easter passage. It's so fitting for us um, because it emphasizes Jesus' indestructible life uh, and um, how he's able to save, how he's able to, um, to save anyone who would be uh, draw near to God through him. And so uh, you can't get more Easter uh, than chapter 7, verse 25, which I think contains the gospel in a nutshell. Um, and so as we get started and I hardly ever do this too, I've entitled this message, Our Predicament and God's Solution. Our Predicament and God's Permanent Solution. So uh, the entire Old Testament is the story of how humanity is in a pickle. Right? We have a gigantic problem. Uh, if we're honest, we find ourselves in a predicament. We are individually, each one of us, in a very difficult, unpleasant, embarrassing situation. Because if we were honest with ourselves, we are terrible kings, we're horrible priests, and we are atrocious prophets. If we're honest with ourselves. right? Because we suffer from the tyranny of self-rule. And we just got done singing about this. Right? Like, Um, Each of us loves to try to function on our own as our own self-appointed, autonomous, self-sovereign individuals. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do or how to live, right? And, And we love to function that way, but in our own little kingdoms, we rule and reign with a deficit of power and resources, so we're terrible kings, and, um, and I don't think, like, if you don't believe me, we can have a conversation about it later, but just look at our culture, right? You could look in the mirror, but look at our culture, and you see that these things are true. There's evidence everywhere, right? And, and so if you don't think we're in a predicament, which we are, and the text will prove that, um, let's talk about how some people try to, to solve the, the predicament we're in. What is the solution some people give? Some people try to ignore the predicament we're in. They're like, hush, don't talk about it, right? Act like it's not even there, it's not real, like we don't have to deal with it. Uh, the problem uh, with that is you're not living in reality, 
Right? That's just living in a fantasy. Some people try to downplay their predicament. They say, it's, it's not so bad. In fact, I'm not so bad. I'm, I'm a pretty good person compared to all the smut out there. You know, like I, I don't even, I don't have a, uh, a problem. They, they're the ones who have a problem. Like, look, look at those people. Like, they're the ones that are in a predicament. Um, man, we love, to, we love to downplay, right, how bad the situation is and, and to deny the fact that we have a problem. Some people try to mask it, try to mask that we're in a predicament, uh, cover it up. Let's throw it underneath the rug. Don't y'all like the new rug, by the way? I want to say it's beautiful. Um, we don't, if we throw it under the rug, nobody can see it. We don't have to talk about it. Right? And, and then let's go on vacation. Let's escape our problems. If we can escape our problems, then we, maybe that'll solve the problem. Or maybe we can go to therapy, and that'll solve the problem. Or maybe we can just get a new car. Are you a new car? And that's, that's exciting. New house, bigger house, that'll fix things, maybe. Well, the only problem with that is, like, Band-Aids don't work when it comes to open-heart surgery, which is what we need. Now, some people try to blame the predicament. It's not my fault. It's my childhood. It's the environment that I'm living in. It's my job. It's my, it's my coworkers. It's, it's, it's my parents. It's the government. Very rarely will we take responsibility and own our problems. And some people, lastly, try to solve the predicament. I can do it all by myself. I can fix it. We can figure this thing out. It's not a big deal, right? The, the old functional savior mentality, like self-help, you're enough. You can do it all by yourself. You don't need anybody else. It's a pretty prideful approach to life. The reality is we can't save ourselves. You can't save yourself and you can't fix yourself. You can't save other people and you can't fix other people. Right? Our greatest predicament is deep down, heart level predicament, not outward. Right? It's, it's inside of us. We are powerless to affect lasting inward change. And because of that, right, because, and the reality of that is we, we don't have control. We can't fix ourselves. And, and when we, we, do, we feel like we're not in control, it, we, we freak out. So what's the solution to our predicament? I believe that God is going to give us the answer to our predicament in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. So let's pray, and I'm going to read our text tonight. Father, we praise you for this evening. Jesus, we praise you that we are talking to a God who is alive. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for giving us this, your word. And we pray that you would satisfy us with your word, that you would turn our hearts to you, open up our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Unite our hearts to you, Father, that we might live in alignment with you and turn our hearts towards you as we read your word and as you teach us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 23, this is God's word. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That'll stop you from moving on. Yeah. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, if you look, if you think back, this is the third sermon in this one chapter. Right? So think back on all the things that we've learned, verses 1 through 10, and then 11 through 22. Right? All the things we've learned, this is a massive chapter about the mysterious Melchizedek, but we've learned so much about Jesus. Right? Up to this point, We know that Jesus became a high priest after the unique order of Melchizedek. We know that Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We know that Jesus clothes us in his righteousness if we put our faith and trust in him before God. And he's given us peace with God. We can have peace with God and peace with man and peace within if we trust in Jesus. And then we know, we learned last week, that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He guarantees it. It's sure, it's done, right? Final, complete, all because of his indissoluble life. Last week, it was Jesus providing a greater salvation than our own obedience to the law. That was the big point, the big takeaway. And one one of the symptoms of our predicament is our lack of security. Because we can't, in and of ourselves, guarantee anything because we're so unsure and we're so weak. Right, and that Greek word right there in verse 22, look at it. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That Greek word, ingrios, means surety. And when you, get a, when you get a loan, sometimes you need a cosigner, right? You need somebody who can guarantee that you'll get that paid back uh, so the bank feels secure, that they know they're going to get their money back. Um, on ancient documents, they needed this to happen. You needed to have a a guarantor, one who offered their goods or even themselves to ensure what was promised. So if Jesus is our guarantor, that means that as long as Jesus lives, the new covenant of our salvation is absolutely secured by him. And because he lives, we can face today and tomorrow with utmost confidence. So in our first verse tonight, in verse 23, it's going to highlight for us our predicament. Look at it with me. It says the former priests. Who were the, the former pe- priests? There were many in number. Right? The Old Testament gives us a lot of examples of imperfect priests. We've got Levi, Aaron, Eli, Joshua. I'm not going to name them all. Then you get to the New Testament, and you've got Annas and Caiaphas, some of the most popular. There are examples of Old and New Testament imperfect priests. And God gave, this is shocking, I want you to envision this as I read this passage. This is Zechariah chapter 3. God gave Zechariah a vision of a high priest whose name was Joshua. And listen to this. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. 
Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Then let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here we have this example of our filthy rags, even on those who serve in the role of high priest, right? right. Satan is accusing the high priest justly, and he accuses us justly that we are guilty. We're vile. We're filthy sinners, e- even for those who are supposed to be the most pure among us, right? Supposed to be impure. Like, like these high priests were not supposed to be impure, but they're impure. Even the, the priest needed God to give them a change of clothes, They had no righteousness in and of themselves. Another predicament is that these priests kept dying. This is verse 23 says. Every priest, even if they were a good high priest, ended up dying, and therefore they couldn't continue in office. There There was a very high turnover rate for this position, right? Either they aged out, you couldn't be a high priest longer than like 25 years, or you died out. You just couldn't continue. So out of verse 23, we see that we're not righteous enough and we have no peace with God. Even those who served as advocates, high priests were, those who were supposed to intercede for us were unholy. They ended up dying. So unrighteousness and death are pretty big predicaments if you ask me. But God provides a solution to the perpetual turnover rate in this office of high priest. Look at verse 24. But he holds his priesthood, Jesus, permanently because he continues forever. So this is referring to Christ's priesthood. He'll never stop being our high priest. He'll, he'll never be out of office because he can't die again. Right? Think about what we read together as a congregation in Romans 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. It no longer has dominion over him because he defeated it. For the death he died, he, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So the resurrection of Jesus, the point of Easter, is cause for celebration because our greatest predicament, death, has been dominated. That's why we can celebrate. That's why we have joy. That's why we can have life abundantly. Because our king lives. And the key word in, in verse 24 is permanently. Permanently. That word means unviolated or unchanged or no successor is needed. There needing to be no other high priest after Jesus. And that means his priesthood isn't going to pass away. It's not going to pass from one person to another because he's still alive and he will continue to be alive. So this one Greek word for permanently means that he's not going to be superseded, which flies in the face of the Mormon claim that Joseph Smith picked up from the Melchizedek line. That's what they claim. There's no need for that because there's no need for Joseph Smith to say that because Jesus is still king. Jesus is still priest. There's no need for another king. There's no need for another priest. There's no need for another prophet. Jesus is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. And the key verse, I believe, in this whole chapter 
is verse 25. Verse verse 25 is power-packed with truth. I want us to read it together again and walk through it. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he himself lives to make intercession for them. So this verse is the gospel in a nutshell. It's saturated with the gospel. It's worthy of worship on Resurrection Sunday. The word consequently links verse 24, right, in in the permanence of Jesus' position as priest with the perpetual intercession of his work as priest on our behalf. Now, I couldn't this week get over the, the, the statement, he is able. He is able to save. Like all week long, it was just going through my mind. He is able to save. And and what I've been praying, what my hope is, is at the end of this message, by the time that we walk out of here tonight, that we would all be honest with ourselves. We'd all be able to confess to the Lord, to ourselves, I am unable. He is able. I am unable to save. Jesus is able to save. Because every parent would agree with me. If we could get every parent up here, right? And if you ever had a kid who's been sick, you desire that they get better, right? And you, you're like, I am willing to do anything for them to get better. But you are not able to fix them. You're not able. You have a, there's no question about your desire. You're very willing. But you're not able to fix them. You're not able to make them well. Right? A lot of times my boys around the house, if we're doing like a, whether it's a, um, something outside, landscaping or whatever, they, they are very willing to help. But they are not able they're just not strong enough. They can't do it. They're willing to help, but they're not able, right? That's super frustrating. It's healthy for us as human beings to say, I am unable, but he is able. Jesus is able. Another way to say that is I can't, but he can, or I am weak and he is strong. We are completely unable, incapable of saving ourselves. We're incapable of fixing ourselves. We need to be honest about this. We have no power in and of ourselves. We need help. It's okay to confess that, to acknowledge that, that we need help. I love the phrase in the Greek, he is able. The word sounds like this, dunamē, which is where we get our English word, dynamite. So he is able. This is an explosive phrase. What he's saying is he's powerful. He's capable. He's strong. Our God is mighty to save. That's what he's saying right here, right? And, it's, and, it's, and he's saying he's able to save, not partially. He's not able to save you a little bit. It says he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save perfectly, completely. Because Jesus leaves nothing undone. He doesn't do things halfway. He's able to save completely, comprehensively to make you whole. And that word save is super important. He's able to save. R.C. Sproul, very famous pastor, author, wrote a book called Saved from What? Because a popular phrase in, in Christian circles is you have Somebody asked you before, like, hey, are you saved? And you're like, am I saved? Or, or when were you saved? You ask anybody outside of Christian circle that question, they're going to be like, saved from what? Like, I didn't know I was in a predicament where I needed to be rescued. I didn't know I needed to be saved. What am I in danger of? 
right? And his point was, the reality is, we all need to be saved from God's holy wrath against and over our sin. That's what we need to be saved from. I once heard a pastor say that the cross of Christ is the love of God rescuing sinners from the wrath of God by vindicating the justice of God and upholding the glory of God. That's really, really good. So the ironic thing about the gospel is the one we need to be saved from is the very one who saves us. Now, salvation has three tenses. It has past tense, present tense, and future tense, right? And this will be on the screen for you. In the past, Jesus saved us in that moment on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's past. Presently, he lives. He is saving us even now, interceding on the throne, And in the future, he will save us when he returns. So salvation has three tenses. And what what does that mean for us practically? Like, what does that mean for my life? Because that's like kind of like theological, abstract, cool. It's great truth. But what does that mean practically? Well, in the past, that means that Jesus provided freedom from the penalty of sin. So I'm not condemned anymore. I'm not under the condemnation of sin anymore. I'm set free from that penalty because Jesus absorbed it in my place, which we just got done singing about. And then presently, it means that Jesus provides the power to not give in to that sin. So I'm not only set free from the penalty of sin, but currently, right now, presently, I'm set free from the power of sin so we can live right now in this life. We have a choice as followers of Christ. To say no to sin and yes to Jesus when we're walking in the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus also, in the future, provides the freedom from the presence of sin. So either when we pass away or when Jesus comes back, we're going to be free from the presence of sin, ultimately free. So who does he save? Because it says he's able to save to the uttermost. Who? Verse 25 says, those who draw near to God through him. It's only through Jesus. Every, every single solution to all of our predicaments that we talked about earlier pales in comparison to Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He alone is able to completely save those who trust in him because his salvation is complete since his priesthood is permanent. His ability to save completely is forever. That word uttermost is perfectly. It's completely in my personal time with the Lord, I've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for the past few months. This week, I've been in Luke chapter 18, and I got to verses 31 through 33 a few days ago, where Jesus again, for like the fourth time, predicts his death, burial, and resurrection to his disciples. Listen to this. It says, this is him talking to his disciples. He says, and taking the 12 aside, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus' sovereignty is so far, his knowledge is so far, that he knew he was going to be spit on. That's not even what we're going to be focusing on. But this is just crazy, right? But when he said everything written in the prophets, in the Old Testament, everything written is going to be accomplished. When he said that word, accomplished, that word is Telio, which means to finish, to end, or to complete. 
It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross in John 19.30 when he said, it is finished. It's complete. It's done. And he breathed his last. The work the Father sent him to, a, to do was accomplished. It was complete. So, Hebrews 7.25, when it says uttermost, reminds us of the complete accomplishment, the finality of Jesus' ability to save completely, perfectly, accomplished, all done, performed, executed, fulfilled. It's done. Finished. In the Blue Letter Bible, I love this quote. It said, Jesus satisfied God's justice by dying for all to pay for the sins of the elect. These sins can never be punished again since that would violate God's justice. Sins can only be punished once, either by a substitute or by yourself. So that means we either pay for our own sins by refusing Jesus' sacrifice and refusing to draw near to God through him. That means we die in our sin and we face the wrath of holy God. Or we draw near to God through him, trust in his substitutionary work on the cross and his victorious resurrection, and then we will have life now and eternal life to come. And that last phrase, I know we're still in verse 25. I thought about just preaching verse 25 because it's just so good. Save the rest for next week. Verse 25, that last part, it's equally as powerful. It says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a Resurrection Sunday verse. He always lives, right? When we come to God through Jesus to enjoy his uninterrupted intercession, right, which guarantees our salvation forever, his intercession is not interrupted. He's a perfect high priest. He, he's never broken. He never stops praying. He's never disconnected. He never falls asleep. Right? He's the author of life, and he conquered death. He always lives to make intercession for us. Right? Listen to this. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, is as secure as Jesus' priesthood is eternal. You can't get more secure than that. Jesus has an indestructible life and priesthood because of the resurrection. Right? This is life-changing truth. You have surety here, confidence. Because of Jesus' resurrection, death does not interrupt or stop his work. He lives and remains our eternal high priest. Our salvation is not static or stationary because our Savior is not idly sitting on his throne doing nothing. He's there currently interceding, arms open, scars shown. Whenever the Father wants to take you or me out, which he should every day, he sees Jesus, and he sees his scars. He not only saved us, but he's saving us right now. He never stops interceding. He never ceases to pray. We don't have any need to go talk to any dead relatives. We have no need to go talk to a dead relative or, or think that they're looking down on us. We, we have no need for dead saints. We don't have to talk to Paul. We don't have to talk to Peter. We don't have to go to a Virgin Mary who's dead. Jesus is wholly sufficient. He is our high priest who always lives to intercede for us. He never stops praying for us. Allie and I have this book in our house called The Story Retold. And it summarizes each book of the Bible 
pretty well. And in the Hebrew section, it says this. It says, a central problem with the priests of the Old Covenant is that they themselves could never fully or completely or consecrated because of their stain of sin in and of themselves. Nor could they complete the Israelites by allowing them unfettered access to God's presence. Jesus, however, fully consecrates believers as complete priests through his work of redemption in his resurrection, granting them access to approach God and broach the Holy of Holies in heaven. All believers in the new age enjoy priestly access to God's heavenly sanctuary through Christ's identification with Melchizedek. The same access that was limited to only the high priest, yet believers enjoy an even more intimate and more permanent experience with God since the high priests had only limited access to the Holy of Holies once a year. This is incredibly good news for us today. It's not like we have to go to a certain place in the world or we have to go to a certain person in the world. Like We can go wherever, whenever we want to. Unlimited access to God through Jesus. The don't enter sign has been changed to freely come in. Free access. Open 24-7, 365. You don't have to wait. You can come to him. Draw near to him. Now you could be thinking to yourself, Joseph, that's a really great idea. I'm glad that there's a free access sign, but you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how dirty I feel. You don't know how filthy I feel. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the thoughts that have gone through my mind that I haven't acted on. I understand how you feel and what you're thinking because I feel the same way. And then it makes this quote even more amazing. From Pastor Richard Phillips, how can Christ speak to me in the filthiness of my sin? Does he know the record of failure? Does he know my infidelity? Does he know my unfaithfulness? The answer is, Jesus need not speak at all. He needs only to identify you as one of his own. He needs only to direct his pierced hand towards you. And if he speaks at all to say, Father, This is one of my own who comes to you through my shed blood for his salvation. Your sins are dealt with completely to the uttermost because Jesus intercedes for you with the remedy of his cross. That is really good news. Jesus is able to save completely and intercede continually because of the cross and the resurrection. Do you believe that today? Do you trust that tonight? Jesus' priesthood is superior because of who he is. Not only because of what he's done, but because of who he is. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus is saying that Jesus is perfectly suited. He's perfectly fitted to be our high priest because of who he is. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's set apart. He's exalted. He meets all of our greatest needs, right? Because we are none of these things. We're we're none of them. He is everything we are not, but we desperately need to be. So these verses highlight who Jesus is, and they highlight our predicament by highlighting who he is. The more clearly we see Jesus, the more filthy we see ourselves. 
right? Because Jesus in his character is godly, holy, perfect. Jesus' life was innocent, blameless, spotless. His heart was pure, unstained by sin, unblemished perfection. His position is exalted because he passed through the heavens. And he didn't exalt himself, but the Father exalted him. And because of who he is, he's perfectly fitted for our predicament. He's able to offer his blood sacrificed for our sins. His work perfectly solved our predicament permanently. So imagine this. Like picture this scene. I'm sure you've seen enough movies to have some scene in your mind. But picture the scene of when Jesus is arrested and he's standing before the priests, the Sanhedrin, in trial. The sham trials that happened at night. Right? Picture the scene. Jesus standing, the perfect high priest, standing before Annas or Caiaphas. Right? This, this amazing, perfect high priest who has no need to justify himself. He has no need to say anything to these men. The ultimate priest is being mocked by filthy, vile, wicked high priests. The ultimate priest being slapped in the face, spit on, by men who were supposed to intercede. Right? This is, a, this is shocking. They're not capable. They're not able. Like, how, how amazing is it? Like, we were talking about this this week. When, when Judas realizes, it's like he comes to, to himself and he's like, he's like, what have I done? I've betrayed innocent blood. And he runs and he throws the 30 pieces of silver back at the, the high priest's feet. And what do they say? These are the men who are supposed to, to say, they're supposed to intercede. They're supposed to make sacrifices for your sins. And what do they say? What is that to us? Are you kidding me? Like these are horrible high priests. Praise God we have a perfect high priest, an ultimate high priest. He's, he's so different from every other high priest because he, he didn't have to offer up animals because he knew that wasn't sufficient. There was no perfection in the blood of animals. Animals aren't created in the image of God. He offers up perfect blood. He offers up himself. And he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. And I have the power to take it up again. This is our king. This is our Lord. This is our God. The sinless one for the sinful people that he loved. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The last verse of this chapter, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. So this highlights the superior word of God over the temporary law that appointed other high priests. Notice how all the other high priests are described in contrast to how Jesus is described in verse 26. It says that these men were appointed in their weakness. Was Jesus weak? Nope. Was he filthy? Nope. Was he soiled? Nope. Right? But all of these other high priests, they were filthy. They had soiled hearts. They had soiled heads. 
They had soiled hands. They were stained with sin. That's why they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Jesus has a superior priesthood because of what? It says of a divine oath. You remember Psalm 110 verse 4? God said, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which made, that, that came after the law of Moses. God spoke that after the law of Moses was given. So that means that the sinless son of God would be the priest perfectly forever. And since it's forever, his sacrifice was final. He had no need to repeat or to continually offer sacrifices. He did not have to cleanse himself. His blood was already spotless. So his sacrifice was once for all done, never to be done again. So Jesus offered himself and still offers himself before God with five scars, one in each hand, one in each foot, one in his side, before the Father, to prove his payment was made perfectly. So what is God's solution to our predicament? Jesus, who is able. Jesus is able to save, and he's our permanent, powerful, and perfect high priest who lives forever. He's able, and because of our predicament, we are in need, and God provides a permanent and perfect solution in Jesus. Jesus meets our need. So the question is, have you admitted your need? Have you admitted, have you agreed with God that you are in a predicament? Have you acknowledged your lack of a solution that you can't fix the problem? You can't get yourself out of this one. We needed God to send a high priest who wasn't filthy, whose clothes didn't need to be changed, who didn't need to, he didn't have to get new garments, right? so he was and is clothed in holiness and innocent and unstained, separate from birth to the cross. This perfectly pure priest stands as our representative before God the Father. He ever and always lives to make intercession for us. He's alive, and he represents the covenant community before the throne of God. He clothes his own people, those who trust in him, in robes of righteousness. Because our risen king priest is alive, we can draw near to God through him and enjoy a relationship with him now and forever. So I want to close asking a few practical questions and then reading a super old hymn. Do you live daily in fellowship with God? Have you drawn near to God through Jesus? Do you talk with the Lord regularly in prayer? Have you acknowledged Jesus' ability and power to save completely? Or are you looking elsewhere to yourself, to something else? Or are you looking to him, running to him, laying your predicaments in his capable hands? Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. It's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. I'll read it and then we'll respond in worship. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. 
He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race, his blood atoned for every race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. May we consider ourselves forgiven, dead to sin, and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for this incredible good news. The truth that we get to proclaim with our lips that you are able to save. Not only are you able, but you're willing. Father, we are often, far too often, so unwilling. We're unwilling to admit our need. We're unwilling to confess our sin. We are deceived into thinking that we can solve our own problems, that we can fix, come up with our own solution. Father God, we praise you for giving us a solution in Jesus, our perfect and permanent high priest. Lord, I pray if there's anyone who has yet to acknowledge that they are unable and that you are able, that you would draw them to yourself right now and that they would worship you as their risen king, as their perpetual intercessor and as the perfect prophet that you are. We praise you for being everything that we're not and everything that we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.